Well, welcome again to church. I'm Matt Friend, the senior pastor. It is so, so good to see you, see so many out this morning for our 9 o'clock service. I want to welcome you who call Bible Center Church your home, and also those of you who are our guests and joining us online. It's great uh, to have you with us. If you would take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you'd open your Bible or your Bible app. You can also follow along on the screens. We always have our verses on the screens. And let me invite you to stand out of respect for God's Word as I read verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Today we continue our series in 1 Timothy called Blueprints of a Healthy Church. Today's sermon is number four of 11. And so if you've missed the previous three, uh, you can find them online or you can find them on our app. This letter was written about 1950 years ago by God through the Apostle Paul to a young pastor in Ephesus. This pastor's name was Timothy. Now, if you want to read the full story of how a church came to Ephesus, you can read it in Acts 19. It's a pretty cool story. But we know that Ephesus was important to the Lord and it was important to the Apostle Paul. As I said several weeks ago, Ephesus was strategic for Christianity in Asia for four or five reasons. Uh, it was a strategic business location. It was a, an interstate hub. It was a, an entertainment location. Uh, we know that Ephesus was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. And so there's a lot of similarities between Ephesus and Charleston, or at least we're going to try to make as many as we can. Just like Interstate 64 and Interstate 77 and Interstate 79 converge in Charleston, so number of trade routes converged on Ephesus. Just like people from all over our state come to Charleston for the Clay Center and our a new convention center, people from all around Asia came to Ephesus for their giant theater. Ephesus was a religious hub. It was, the, it was where the Temple of Diana was located, one of the seven great wonders of the world. And so the Apostle Paul writes to this pastor and he writes to this church and he says, pray for your city. Pray for people in your city. Specifically, pray for the leaders of the government in your city that God will do amazing things. I love verses 1 and 2, summarized, paraphrased in the message. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way. The first thing I want you to do is pray. Pray every way you know how for everyone you know. Pray especially for rulers and for governments to rule well. 
What the Apostle Paul does in the next five verses is explain why it's so important that this young church pray for their city. And what I want to do in the next few minutes as we go through the next five verses is explain why it's so important for us in Charleston, West Virginia, to pray for our city as well. The Apostle Paul lists five reasons in the next five verses And I'm convinced these five reasons are the way that we'll be inspired, by the way we'll be challenged to pray for the city of Charleston, the town that you call home, or the greater Charleston area we often refer to as the Kanawha Valley. Now there's really one way to determine whether or not this sermon will be a success, and it's this. That is, if you leave praying more for your city or your community than when you came in. If you leave today praying for your community and people in your community, this sermon will be a success. If we don't leave praying more for our community or our cities, the sermon won't be a success. And so I want it to be a success and I need your help. And so I'll ask you to be thinking about who the Lord would have you pray for at the end of the message. And by the time we finish, I'm going to give you a few minutes to pray specifically for people that God lays on your heart. Let's dive in God's word together and see why to pray for our city. Number one, we pray for our city because God cares about the peace of our city. God cares about the peace of our city. In verse two, he says that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. As we saw a few weeks ago, there were false teachers in the church at Ephesus who had crept in and were creating all sorts of conflict. It seems like everywhere these false teachers went, every influence they had, it it created more conflict and more dispute. And so the Apostle Paul writes to the church to specifically combat these troublemakers. And he says, no, the the Christian community in Ephesus should be a, a relatively peaceful community so that that peace can be a witness to the city. The more friction that these false teachers caused, uh, the bigger target for persecution their church became. And so the Apostle Paul writes and he says, no, the goal of God is that you live a peaceful and quiet life in your community. That's always been the heartbeat of God for his people. We see it all the way back in Jeremiah 29 and verse 7. He says, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. There's two really big reasons. These aren't in your notes. They aren't in your bulletin. But there's two really big reasons why I'm convinced God wants us to pray for the peace of our city. One of those reasons is because the gospel can flourish in a peaceful environment. You think about the Pax Romana, during the Roman peace, how the gospel spread so quickly through this new system of roads and a mail system and the technology available to the day. Now, we certainly are thankful that the gospel can still flourish through persecution and in tough times. But if somebody comes to you and they say, you know, I really hope that persecution comes on Christians because the gospel always gets stronger in persecution, well, I usually say to that yes or no. North Korea is a great example of the no. 
We don't pray for persecution. We pray for a peaceful environment where the gospel can spread. And we'll trust the Lord to do what he sovereignly wills. But another reason we pray for peace is because peace itself points to the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is part of the character of God himself. He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely loving. He is infinitely just. But God is also infinitely, eternally peaceful. And so every time that we see peace brought to a society, it's just a small picture of the peace that Jesus is going to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. Anytime that we participate in social justice or, or we feed a hungry belly or we get involved in praying for our city or a Christian runs for government, all of that is just a taste of what the gospel one day will bring to the entire world. And so God says, pray for the peace of your city. One of my mentors once gave me some advice. He says, when you meet a government leader, when you, when you first meet them, just let them know you appreciate them and that you're praying for them, even if you don't agree with all of their policy. He said, look them right in the eye, shake their hand and let that man or woman know you pray for them. Now, there's been a few occasions when I really haven't been praying for that government leader. And so I'm like, you know, I got 10 feet between me and him or her. And so I throw up a quick Hail Mary prayer, you know, like, Lord, bless this person. Then I can look him right in the eye. Hey, I've been praying for you. And that's partially true. But God invites us to pray. And through prayer, God can use us to be a peaceful, peacekeeping agent in our community. God cares about the peace of our city. Why else do we pray for our city? Well, number two, God cares about our reputation in the city. God cares about our reputation in the city. Notice verse two again. He says that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. All godliness and holiness. Paul is repeating back what he already said in chapter one and verse five. When he says that God wanted the church to have a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Christians aren't called to be weird. The false teachers were making the church or, or tempted to make the church weird by adding all sorts of weird laws and standards that God never gave. And so God doesn't want the church to be weird, but he does call the church to be different. He says, I want you to be godly and I want you to be holy. Now, the word godly and holy by themselves have their own meaning, but this week I learned, Bible scholars tell us, that when we see godliness and holiness together, what Paul is referring to is an inward attitude that results in an outward behavior. So godliness refers to our inward desire to please the Lord, not so that God will like us more, but just because we love the Lord. And that inward desire spreads into an outward behavior of morality and goodness, holiness in our community. Holy motives always result in holy behavior. Holy motives always result in holy behavior. Now, he doesn't double-click on godliness and holiness yet in this book. In a few weeks, we're going to see him do that. But I want to invite you to either turn or look on the screen with me at Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, in that letter, he actually does double-click on godliness and holiness. And I want to read that to you now. 
In Titus chapter 2, verses starting in verse 1, Paul writes to Titus, another young pastor, and he says, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate. Now, for some reason, older men in Titus's day, and I would argue perhaps even in our day, older men have a tendency not to be as disciplined as they were when they were young men. And so he says, Titus, remind the older men that godliness looks like discipline. Teach the older men to be worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in the faith. Don't quit reading your Bible. Don't quit learning God's Word, but keep growing. You don't know it all. I don't know it all. We never will. So keep growing to be sound in the faith. Grow in love. It's tempting, evidently, for these older men in Titus's day to be maybe a little bit grouchy, a little bit grumpy. And so he says, hey, Titus, as a young pastor, remind the older men to be an example of love in their community and endurance. Older men are tempted to quit. They get discouraged, just like we all do. So he says, remind the older men, we need you. So if you classify yourself as an older man today, I'm not going to classify you that way, but if you classify yourself as an older man, we need you. The church needs you to be godly and holy like never before. And then he writes to the older women. He says in verse 3, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live. Not to be slanderers. Evidently, the older women in Paul's day uh, had a lot of free time on their hands. They could burn up the phone lines, right? They had a lot of time on Facebook. They could sure say what they wanted to say, and they had time to say it. So he says, don't do that. Encourage the older women not to be addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children. Interestingly, in this passage, Paul never tells Titus to personally teach the younger women. It wouldn't have been appropriate for a young pastor to have a, a small group of younger women that he led. So we need the older women to teach the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, disciplined, and pure, to be busy at home, that doesn't have to be the only place they ever are, but to be busy at home, their household, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Then he speaks to the young men in verse 6. He says, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. I'm going to give you the Matt Friend translation. I'm not far off from the Greek here. The translation for that verse 6 is simply this, keep the young men out of jail, right? That really isn't far off. Keep the young men out of jail. Teach them to be self-controlled, Titus. And everything, try to set an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say. Then in verse 9, he actually speaks to godliness in the workplace. He says in verse 9, teach workers to be subject to their bosses in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. 
This is godliness. This is holiness in the world today. But notice he says, why? So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. God wants us to be growing in the faith so we can have the reputation for growing in godliness and holiness. I'm finding that whenever I pray for somebody or I pray for our community, I'm much more aware of how I live around that person because I pray for that person. So let me invite you today, pray for the city so that your reputation may grow and my reputation may grow as well. Why else do we pray for our city? He gives us the third reason in verse 3. God wants everyone in our city to be rescued. God wants everyone in our city to be rescued. He says in verse 3, This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He says in verse 3, This is a good thing. Now, if you're taking notes or you write in your Bible, you might draw an arrow from verse 3 back to verse number 1. What is a good thing? Praying for people is a good thing. And he says, it pleases God our Savior because God wants all people to be saved. At the very heart of God is salvation. The name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the heart of God is that all people have an opportunity to be saved. Now, he doesn't say, as we'll see later in this book, that all people will be saved. I wish that were the case. Somebody says, do you think all people are eventually going to end up in heaven? I wish that was the case with all of my heart. But we know from God's word that's not the case. But it is God's heart for all people to hear and have opportunity to respond. Evidently, there were some false teachers in the church at Ephesus that didn't agree with this teaching. They didn't want all people to be saved. They had formed, most scholars believe, this almost elitist mentality. They wanted their church to be small and to stay small. And so here comes young Timothy into the church as the pastor, and he's focusing on outreach, and he's focusing on the city. And they had a real problem with that. You can just hear them saying, you know, Timothy, the church is for the believer. Why are you so concerned for the unbeliever? And so Paul writes like a, a surgeon in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5, and he says, Timothy, don't listen to them, but instead do the work of an evangelist. Paul was concerned for the city. Timothy was to be concerned for the city. And this church in Ephesus was to be concerned for their city. This week I read Dr. John MacArthur's commentary. And on this particular verse, I loved what he wrote. He said it far better than I could, so I'll just read his. He says that Paul begins his teaching on church order with this topic sheds light on the primary focus for our church. If the primary aim of the church were fellowship, knowledge of the word, or holiness of the saints, all those goals could be perfectly accomplished by taking us to heaven. But the central function of the church on earth is to reach the lost. Paul knew that the Ephesians would never do that as long as they maintained their selfish exclusivism. 
To carry out their mission in the world, they must be made to understand the breadth of the gospel call. And the first feature in understanding that is to come to grips with evangelistic praying. He says, church, yes, we grow in the faith. Yes, we mature in the faith. But it's never an end in and of itself. It's so that we might pray that all the world could be saved. He continues in verse 5 and 6 and says, There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. The word ransom means uh, it's a rescue price. It's the price paid for a slave or a prisoner to be released. Which is why in Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. I've come to give my life as a ransom for all people. And he says it again, the same thing in verse 3. He says it in verse 6. I've come to give myself for all people. God loves to save Americans, but God equally loved to save those from China. God loves to save Democrats and Republicans and Independents. God loves to save Native Americans and African Americans and those from South Hills and Alum Creek. God loves to save Patriots and Black Eagles and Cougars and Skyhawks and Warriors and Rams. God, He wants to save all people. And so in a moment, I'll ask you, who is God laying on your heart? But before I ask you that question, I want to ask this question. Who right now do you not want to pray for? Is there a group of people in our community, is there an ethnicity of people that you really don't want to pray for? Is there someone from a political party that you really do not want to pray for? Is there someone from a different class than you or a different neighborhood than you? Or is there a family member who hurts you and you really do not want to pray for them to know Jesus? Is there a boss who did you wrong and on your darkest day, instead of praying that they would come to faith in Jesus, you pray actually the opposite against them? God says in his word, no, pray that they come to faith in Jesus. And if they claim Christ, pray that they would come back and live like Christ because God wants everyone in our city to be rescued. Why else do they pray? Do we pray for our city? Well, there's two more reasons. And we see the fourth reason in verse 5. He says in verse 5, There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. This seems like a simple statement, but it's power packed. What Paul is saying is this there's not a God for this group of people, and there's not a God for that group of people, but actually there's only one God. This is what we call monotheism. Monotheism drives mission. Because we believe there is only one God and one Savior, and his name is Jesus, this is why we want to get the word out to the world. You see, he says Jesus is the mediator for all people. Jesus bridges the gap between heaven and earth. He was fully God and yet fully man. So Jesus knew, Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. The word mediator really isn't that hard of a word. It's more of a law term than a church word. But if you're a parent, you understand what a mediator is. 
If you've ever had two children and one toy, you know what a mediator is. Um, If you have Fortnite in your house right now, and you have an Xbox, one Xbox, and one TV, and more than one child, you know what a mediator is right now. I'm thinking about forming a Fortnite support group for all the parents, uh, just trying to navigate their way through this. So Jesus was a mediator between us and is between us and God. And he says here in verse 2 that there is one God and his name is Jesus. If you're taking notes, you do not want to miss this. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. This famous Shema, this call to worship. For over a millennia, the people of God were called to worship through this one verse which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And so Paul is quoting this Old Testament verse to say, Do you know who that one Lord is? His name is Jesus. And when you come together to worship, you're worshiping Jesus. And the heart of God for all people is that all the world would worship Jesus. Now we know people have to come to faith in Christ before they can truly worship the Lord with a whole heart. But that's why I so love the services that we're offering now at 9 o'clock and 11. And thank you for getting up early. For many of you who used to come to 11 years ago, Now you come to the nine. Praise God for you. Thank you. We want to create space so that more people, different kinds of folks with different kinds of preferences and styles can find a place to worship Jesus in our city. You say, what are we going to do when we fill up two services? We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But right now, we want all people to worship Jesus. There's a fifth and last reason that God wants us to pray for our city. And we see it in verse 7. Praying for the city reminds us that Monday is just as important as Sunday. That Monday is just as important as Sunday. In verse 7, he writes this. For this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. In verse 7, he uses three words to describe him spreading or proclaiming the gospel. And he says, I'm a herald, which means I preach the truth. I'm an apostle, which means I wrote the truth. And I'm a teacher, which means that I teach or share the truth. And so the apostle Paul was referring to his calling. He was saying, when you pray for the city... The word that has been taught, the word that has been shared, actually takes root as you pray. Now, we know that not all of us are called to be apostles. Not all of us are capital T teachers. Not all of us are preachers. But all of us are called to share the truth and be salt and light in our city. I would argue that you can actually share the truth with people far better than I can share the truth with some of the people in your life. You know the people with whom you work. You're close with your family members. You have friends that may never listen to me, but they would listen to you. And so what he's saying here is this. Hey, pray that as the gospel goes out and as you teach and share God's word, pray that it would take root, not just on Sunday, but pray that it would take root on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday 
as you share the word of God that you've learned. If we were to ask Paul, Paul, how would you pray for the church at Ephesus? Paul may put it something like this. Pray that the church at Ephesus learns the word so much. They learn the word so well that they can share the word without thinking about it. Pray that as you come together, that as you learn God's word, and as you hear God's word, you learn the word so well that you can go out and share it without thinking about it. One of the reasons we have First Timothy studies, these book studies that we put out, is so that you can dive deeply in the word of God. Last I heard, we have like five or 700 left. They are free for you to take. So I hope today as you leave, you'll grab them out of one of the tables in the lobby also called the gathering space. Grab a booklet and go deeply in God's word as we go through the book of 1 Timothy over the next couple months. Last night, or actually Friday night, we had a wedding rehearsal and Sarah and I were with the family at Black Sheep Burrito, and, which by the way is a great place. And, and we're hanging out with the, the father of the groom and he all of a sudden started telling us what he's learning from his 1 Timothy booklet. He's on page such and such, and he's like, man, this is good. I'm learning 1 Timothy. Let me tell you what I learned yesterday. It was encouraging to us to hear that over dinner. And I want you to grow deeply in God's Word, and I want to grow deeply in God's Word together so that together we can share it, not just on Sundays, but also on Mondays. If you forget everything I've mentioned so far in this message, my encouragement to you is this. Pray for all people. Pray for your city. Pray for your community, wherever that is in the Canal Valley or elsewhere you live. Pray specifically for people that God brings to your mind. I believe right now there's somebody that the Lord put on most of your hearts. There's a face that somebody, uh, somebody who needs to know Jesus. You're not sure if they're a believer yet. And in a moment, I'm going to give you the opportunity at the end of our service to pray and ask God to save them, that the Lord would open their heart by grace to believe the gospel and respond to the gospel in faith. This past week, I was reminded of the power of prayer. I was hanging out with my cousin, hadn't seen him in about three years and my cousin was telling me about how his mom, who had died three years ago, the last time I saw him was at her funeral. And I had driven from Louisville back into Charleston to do her funeral. And he lives in Rockford, Illinois. And he was telling me that he can't get away from the Lord because he believes he can't get away from the prayers of his mother. He says, man, I just can't get away from the Lord. God keeps drawing me back because I know my mom prayed for me so, so many years Hey, who does God want you to go after in your prayers? Keep on praying. Don't quit. Ask God to save them. Pray earnestly for all people, just like Paul told Timothy and the church at Ephesus to do. This past week, I read a story from Chuck Swindoll. He wrote it, I believe, in 1983, so it's a few years old. And I want to read the story to you as we close. I'm going to invite... Pastor Robert, to join me here on the platform and get ready. But I want to read this story to you. It really just caps, it captures what I want to see God do in our church this fall. Dr. Swindoll writes this, On a dangerous seacoast, notorious for shipwrecks, there was a crude little life-saving station. Actually, the station was merely a hut with only one boat. But the few devoted members 
kept a constant watch over the turbulent sea with little thought for themselves. They would go out day and night, tirelessly searching for those in danger as well as the lost. Many, many times, many, many lives were saved by this brave band of people who faithfully worked as a team in and out of the life-saving station. By and by, it became a famous place. Some of those who had been saved, as well as others along the seacoast, wanted to become associated with this little station. They were willing to give their time, their energy, their money in support of its objectives. New boats were purchased and new crews were trained, and the station that was once obscure and crude and virtually insignificant began to grow. Some of its members, though, were unhappy that the hut was so unattractive and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided. Emergency cots were replaced with lovely furniture. Rough handmade equipment was discarded and sophisticated, classy systems were installed. The hut, of course, was discarded to make room for all the new items. By its completion, the life-saving station had become a popular gathering place and its objectives began to shift, unfortunately. It was now used as sort of a clubhouse, an attractive building for public gatherings, saving lives and feeding the hungry and strengthening the fearful and calming the disturbed rarely occurred. Fewer members were now interested in braving the sea on life-saving missions, so they hired professional lifeboats to do the work and left professional life crews to do the work. The original goal of the station, though it wasn't altogether forgotten, the life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations. In fact, there was a symbolic lifeboat preserved in a prominent room with soft, indirect lighting, which helped hide the layer of dust on the once-used vessel. One dark and stormy night, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold and wet and half-drowned people. They were dirty, they were sick, and they were obviously from distant shores. The station was in chaos. The event was so traumatic that the people contracted for outbuildings to be constructed so future shipwrecks could be processed with less disruption. At the next meeting, there were strong words and angry feelings, which resulted in a division among the members. Most of the members wanted to discontinue the life-saving station's activities because they were unpleasant. They were a hindrance to their normal way of life. Some insisted, however, that rescue was their primary purpose, and they pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station, but they were ignored, and they were told if they wanted to keep saving as their primary purpose, they would begin, have to begin their own station down the coast, which they did. As years passed, the new station experienced the same old changes. It evolved into yet another club and continued to repeat itself. And if you visit the coast today, you will find a large number of exclusive, impressive clubs along the shoreline, owned and operated by professionals and members who've lost all involvement with the saving of lives. That's how Dr. Swindoll ends the story. You can write him, you can email him. I think he's in Texas now. But I'm going to change the ending of his story. I didn't ask him for permission, but I'm going to write one more paragraph of a better ending and an ending I sense here at Bible Center. Here's what I wrote yesterday. As the years passed, the life-saving station realigned around the mission 
to rescue as many people as possible and to train them to rescue as many people as possible again. And it used every available resource for this purpose. It streamlined, it refocused, it reorganized. Change was hard for the life-saving station, but it was necessary. Did it modernize? Well, yes, in one sense, it modernized. Its members knew that to stay on the cutting edge with the latest rescue equipment was required. However, in another sense, it actually went back in time. The life-saving station went back to its original purpose. Those who were rescued were trained to go back out week after week and save more lives. Within a few years, another life-saving outpost was started uh, 10 or so miles down the road, and then another, and then another, and before long, the whole state was dotted with outposts, all reflecting the DNA of the first. Lifesavers' children grew up with this emphasis and were trained also to save lives. Generation after generation worked together to fulfill this task, and in the end, the names of the original lifesavers were forgotten. But that didn't matter. All that mattered was that lives were saved. I'm going to ask us to take the next few minutes and ask God to help us be more faithful to witness to our friends and neighbors. You take a few minutes and pray for the people that God has put on your heart. Will you join me now? Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Right there in your seat, if there are people that you want to pray for, pray for them. I invite you every Sunday, we're going to make time. If you want to come to the front, you want to pray, you're welcome to do that. If you want to pray with somebody, for somebody, our prayer room is going to open up now. The prayer room is back on my left, your right. The doors have opened up off to the side. It's a nice private place for you to pray with somebody or for somebody. Take a few minutes and let's pray as a church family. Our Father, I pray now with my brothers and sisters for children who are away from Jesus. I pray for parents who don't yet know Christ, for co-workers, for neighbors, for people down at the ball field, for people at the tennis club. Father, I pray for our friends and neighbors that they would know Jesus. And as all these names are being lifted up to you, help us to see their faces. And Lord, we get really, really busy. I get really, really busy. And Satan can distract us from the main thing. And I pray that we'll know Jesus deeper so the gospel can go wider in our city. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen and amen.
At the end of every service, we're going to try to give you time to pray. There'll be some Sundays where, at least monthly, we'll do communion. Uh, but at the end of every service, one of the ways that we'll respond is through singing. We're going to sing in just a moment one last song. But we're also going to respond through our giving of our offerings, giving of our tithes and offerings in worship. And this is one thing we've been wanting to do for a while. And so at the end of every service, one of us will come and we'll take the offering. I want to invite the ushers to join me here at the front. And as they come, I want to just take a second and thank you for your faithful giving week after week. I believe that Bible Center Church gives out of worship. I believe that with all of my heart. And just as we sing, just as we pray, I believe you give in response to the Lord. I want to take a second and just say thank you. In five months, just five months, we've been trying to attack this debt. And I couldn't help but celebrate it. I wanted to wait till next week, but I couldn't help but celebrate it today. After the last week's service at the levy, because of the sale of our property, because of all that's been given so far in just five months, actually less than five months, you have crushed our debt down from $12.5 million to under now, it's under 11 in just five months. Can we just thank the Lord together for what God has used you to give? This is huge, and we're going to continue to pray that. I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to walk down and actually give on my iPhone. I invite you to do the same. However you give, let's give into the Lord as a response to our worship. And when we're done, Pastor Robert will lead us in one last song. Let's give to the Lord.